I don't like starting uh, a sermon with a joke, especially a joke I don't like. It's too old, it's too stupid, but I'm going to. Because it'll set up where we are in our search for wisdom out of the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, second in the series. The old joke is a man, is, uh, he's under a street light at night and he's crawling around on his hands and knees and somebody walks up to him and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm, I'm looking for my car keys. And the guy was searching with him for a while, and he goes, well, are, where did you drop them? He said, oh, about a block over. He says, why aren't you over there? And he says, the light's better here. <laughs> now, that, that's a stupid joke. It really is. And it's probably as old as Noah. Uh, I, I imagine he told it to, the, you know, to his wife, and it wasn't much of a crowd, and they couldn't leave. <laughs> but there's something to it. And I want you to remember the old stupid joke as we read a book that troubles us. Ecclesiastes is a very troubling book. And if you've been trying to follow along and you read chapter 1 last time and you, you kind of read ahead to, into chapter 2 thinking it's going to pick up, it didn't pick up. It, it doesn't. And in fact, even its payoff passage, there's not much of a payoff. So why are we doing this? Why are we reading a book that seems to say things that believers shouldn't be saying? Or maybe even aren't allowed to say. But it's a very necessary book. If you cannot learn by the example of others, you are going to have a miserable, pain-filled life. Because you're going to have to hit every obstacle and suffer every indignity because you didn't pay attention to the ones that went before you. Pay attention. It can make life a lot easier. But here's the thing. Every generation has to learn some things on their own. It's just the way it is. It is and by the way, that doesn't end. You know, Cammie and I had to learn how to be parents and then how to be empty nesters. You know, and then now we're moving into the caring for older parents thing. We're all learn. You, you keep having to learn. But one of the cool things is you can look at others and say, what did they do that worked? What did they do that did not? When you're uh, a teen, I love teens. I think teens are fantastic. Uh, and one of the great things about teens is that they haven't yet found their identity. Now, there are a few. There are a few that have. They're, they come out of the womb knowing who they're going to be. But most teens, if you were to boil down who are you going to be, boils down to not my parents. And that's fine. You're not supposed to be your parents. Besides, they look over at you and, what are you doing, Mr. and Mrs. Excitement? Uh, you're, you know, we're sitting in chairs thinking, you know, Kami, next year, I think we might, I don't know, put in a row of beans in the backyard. And she's going, oh, that might be too racy, that. You know, the neighbors be talking. And the teens watching that going, oh, no, how long do I have bef <laughs> before this sets in? And so they try on different identities. I find that wonderful. And the preachers and parents and teachers can warn about the dangers out there. But even the, the best of our kids touches a few electric fences along the way. This book tries to keep your eyes open for the journey ahead of you, wherever you are in life. And one thing you need to know about this book, and that is that God doesn't really enter the conversation until quite late 
in the book. And even then, it's more of a drive-by by God. Very briefly, this book bears the voice of a secular, guideless person wandering out in a land with no boundaries, not understanding what's good or what's bad until he searches for himself. The futility of that search and the pain that kind of search can bring, well, that's, that's what we want to avoid. So we watch this search carefully. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what is pleasure accomplished? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. You know, that, you know whenever you, you hear about folly and wine for the few days of your life, that this probably didn't pay off. And it did not. This will surprise no one, but there are many things that baffle me. I see it. I, I watch it, I know what's about to happen, and it's still, I'm going, I don't get the point of this thing at all. I understand that the variety of human experience is, is almost endless, and your interests are, are endless as well, and I have my likes and my wishes, and you have yours. That said, I've never understood why anybody would want one minute to live one minute in a crowded bar full of yelling people jumping up and down and strobing lights. And then somebody screaming at you to enjoy yourself more. Jump more. More. And I'm walking in going, this is hell. This is exactly what hell looks like. All this sensory stuff and people telling you, you need more of it. And, and you go to a concert. It's, you like the music, so you go and they stand up, and it's not sufficient. No, you have to be more excited than you are. I, I listened to, uh, I didn't go to this concert, but I bought the concert uh, on iTunes, and I was listening, and the guy said, is anyone alive out there? Well, that's a strange question. Well, what did you, did, were you expecting dead people? Uh, uh, and then the ones that go, are you ready to rock? And I'm thinking... I drove two hours, I paid $25 to park, I paid $100 for my seat, and $5 for the Diet Coke. I've done my bet. You rock. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it, but there are people who live for the rave, or back in the 70s, they're like, live for the disco. They live for that noise and the the, oh, all of the input of, of lights and crowds. But I've never understood it. And I'll tell you one part of it I, I've never understood. Bar hopping. What does bar hopping do? Drinks are cheaper if you buy your own at home. If you want friends, invite some. If you don't have any, you're not going to find them at the bar. You're going to find people who are also looking in the wrong place for whatever they want and willing, night after night, week after week, to put themselves through some real damage and not end up with anything. I remember in, in university, 
I'd be, you know, I, I would have friends that would do this, that would bar hop. We're going to have some drinks here and some drinks there. And I'm thinking, I, you're, you're spent, why? And I wouldn't go. Um, and they, they would come later and say, Patrick, you don't know how to have fun. I'll go, let's review. Do you have any money? They'll go, oh, no, no. Fair enough. Do you have a headache? And they're going, shh, yes, very much so. Do you have a girlfriend? Well, I don't know. Something must have happened. She's not talking to me today. Uh-huh. Where's your car? Um, you know, back then they couldn't go like this and hear it beep. You actually had to go hunt through the forest. And so there, and I'm saying, you know something? If that is fun, if that is actually the definition of fun, you are correct. I don't know how to have it. And more, I flee from it. That's... But people do it again and again and again, and it keeps not working. Look at Ecclesiastes, if you had that open a while ago again. Look at that. See if it's likely you're going to find what you want in the noise of the, the constant force-fed entertainment. If you're looking for love, I'm going to submit for you that you're, you're looking in a place that's unlikely to have it. You're not looking where it might show up. The teacher in Ecclesiastes shares his experience with the reader. He went from mindless laughter and found it empty. Now, it's, it's important you get this. He's not saying there's something wrong with enjoying a stand-up comedian or looking forward to a sitcom that you really, you really like. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Laughing actually has a lot of physical benefits for you as well as psychological benefits. He's talking about the mindless, scoffing, snarking humor. It's a particular kind of laughter he's looking at here. It's the cutting wit. It's the put-down. It's the harmful prank that embarrasses somebody else. Over 20 years, I read a paper by a sociologist entitled The David Letterman Generation. Now, the, the articles and the study he did I guess it's more of an article than a study, um, was not against David Letterman. And he didn't say he caused it. He was saying he's a perfect example of what we have become because nothing can be taken seriously. There's always a right to whatever goes on. To do that robs life of meaning. It robs life of pleasure. It robs life of color and joy because you are forced to look upon everything with your head like that and your glances askance and going, yeah, right, sure, what's really going on? The whatever generation or whatevs, uh, whatever, that generation started with people using humor to take joy out of life. It has gotten to the point in the last, I would say, eight or nine years where I can't go watch stand-up comedians because the anger, the harshness, the knife, the hatred, and the division comes out, and not the humor. And it's just, back, I back away going, it's not found there. There is a mention here in wine that I want to, want to stress here. Wine in these verses isn't to be taken in isolation. He's not talking about a glass of wine with your dinner. He's not talking about that. He's talking about any form 
including wine, as if, if I misuse this to a point I can find happiness and meaning. No, not with laughter, not with wine, not with any of these things he's found so far. In fact, the reason alcohol is misused, and you can find verses in Scripture that say it's a danger, and you can find many verses that say there's a gift and a pleasure there. But all of them say drunkenness is wrong. All of them. And so when people go to get drunk, I want to let you know something. We don't know a lot in psychology, frankly, but there are some things we know are absolutely true. Sometimes people will say, I know I said those things, but I was drunk. I know I abused my wife, but I was drunk. No, you didn't abuse your wife because you got drunk. You got drunk so you could abuse your wife. You are using alcohol to allow yourself to be a monster. To allow yourself to have an excuse. What are you using it for? Let's be very careful. What are we using laughter for? We've got to apply the same metric to all of these things. <clears throat> laughter and joy, they're wonderful things. The, the folly here is that empty, destructive, joyless application like the political hate that now takes the uh, is called comedy the divisiveness which is called comedy the teacher in ecclesiastes moves on and so shall we look at the next section i undertook great projects i built houses for myself and planted vineyards i made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Now, some of us here might strongly disagree with the teacher saying, you did all of this with wisdom? But we need to understand what he is saying. Because some of the things he talks about there are reprehensible to us. Harems and slaves and the like. So what does he mean by this? What he means is he tried these things on purpose thoughtfully feeling and being self-reflective as he goes through the process to see does this work and in that he's got miles ahead of most of us most of us do not live in a mindful way we're not paying attention to the moment we're not paying attention is this working for example have you ever after a meal gone oh my i ate way too much well pay more attention, and I've done it too, by the way, if you pay more attention as you eat, you eat less because of a couple things. One, um, if you're distracted, you don't get the signal. Your body has a chemical that says stop it, and it takes about 20 to 25 minutes to form. You might be saying, well, that's way too slow. In most of life, it took a lot longer than that to make and eat a meal, and you were gathering along the way, so it worked just fine. The second is the law of diminishing returns. I love cake. Cake is good. Cake is wonderful. All bow to cake. However, 
It is true, and I hate to admit this, but it is very true, that the first bite of cake is the best. Unless you're saving the icing, then first bite of that is best. But the more you go through, you get a diminishing pleasure. Most of us don't pay attention to that. Most of us don't pay attention to our lives. He's paying attention. He's saying, I'm doing this on purpose to see if this will give me meaning, if this will help me. He's intentional. He's observational. In that sense, he's miles ahead. But then, how does he respond after he's applied his wisdom to everything he's just done? He breaks into a song or a poem here. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. By the way, teens, I know you get hit with stuff like this all the time. Ask your grandparents back in the 60s about the phrase, if it feels good, do it. That was everywhere. Do you remember that? If you're able to remember the 60s, there were other issues. <clears throat> oh, I'm aware of that. But if, if you still have a few brain cells left, there would even be bumper stickers. If it feels good, do it. That was, a, that was almost a national mantra. I refused my heart no pleasure. Well, follow your heart, you're told. Follow your heart. How many stories tell you to follow your heart? Your heart is stupid. Don't do that. Follow your brain, and if your heart and brain work together, yes. If not, default to brain. They say that love is blind. Oh, it's deaf, it's mute, it's nauseous, it's... You, you need the head, you need the head. My heart took delight in my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Mindless folly didn't help him, so he tried accomplishments. The buildings and gardens and slaves and singers, he mentions, were all... Uh, very specific signs of prosperity and status in his world. Fill in the ones that would be for you. Because it would be really easy here to say, well, we're not going to do that harem and slave bit. Good. But what are our metrics? What are our measuring sticks for success and happiness? What are we applying? Bring it into the, your world. Rather than pour scorn on him for his measurement, Consider how we measure success. The Irish have a proverb that says, it's better to own little than want a lot. It's better to own little than want a lot. But isn't a lot how we measure success? And we, we keep ratcheting it up as well. Cars now routinely cost more than $70,000. It's just shock. It really is. Homes in our area, this area around here, are so expensive that the poor who live among us in government housing are trapped and can never escape. No matter how hard they work, no matter how much they're educated, they cannot escape. We have created prisons. And our prices still go up because we want more and we want more. But our friends who are poor are also valuable. They are also worthy of respect. They're worthy of the same respect. We would show somebody who, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, has built and acquired. 
because they're people. We need to measure people in a different way than we measure our stuff. I've walked among statues and plinth. If you don't know what plinth is, you can look it up. It's just a tall, needle-looking like thing. Dedicated to the greatest of men and women. If you've been to Europe, you've done the same. We don't do it so much here, but there's some that's done here. But you, you walk in European squares, and there'll be all these statues with very, you know, very important people up there somehow. And you, you go and you read the name, and you go, I don't know who these people are. And by the way, in the city of Glasgow, largest city in Scotland, that's where we, 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 uh, we around that Glasgow area, that's where we lived. There's, there's George Square, and it's really famous for two things. One, it's a very big plaza full of plinths and statues that nobody can remember what they did. And second, the one we do know, Duke Wellington, they can't keep a traffic cone off his head. Seriously, it has been going on for 40 years now. And so I've been over here, so I have an alibi. But every time the, poli the police will put a camera on it, They'll have guards and patrols. Next day, there's a traffic cone on top of his head. <clears throat> I, I think it's magic. But I look around and I go, they were so important. It'll sometimes says raised by public uh, subscription. What that means is that the public loved this person so much, they all chipped in. It wasn't the government. It was all the people put this, and now, <coughs> sorry, if you don't have don't have your phone with Google, you have no clue who they are. One tourist attraction in Glasgow is the Necropolis, the City of the Dead. It's a huge, elaborate, <coughs> sorry, I love Tennessee, I'm allergic to it. And um, I find that one of life's great cruelties, everything is meaningless chasing after the wind. Um, if I put a cough drop in, if I'd started earlier, it lasts 30 minutes, so I know when to stop. One, one time I put a button in. I didn't know that was there. Um, <clears throat> that sermon went a while. Uh, anyway, now all of you are wondering what I just put in. Well, let's just see. <clears throat> I've walked through the necropolis and these massive mausoleums, important people, and I don't remember who they were. And I'm not ill-read, and I'm rather good at history, but it's an important lesson for all of us. We are a part of the story of God on earth, but we are not the point of the story of God on earth. And our names will be forgotten down here, and that's fine, because this isn't how we measure our value. He tried it did not work. Everything gets forgotten. I did not believe this when I heard the figure, so I went to check it. It was um, reported by The Guardian, which is a major newspaper in London, England, uh, Jerusalem Post, The Washington Post. I wrote down a couple of these. It was also in Newsweek. All of them quoted the same figure and the same studies that was done and how it was done. 50% of Americans... 50% of Americans don't know what the Holocaust was. Even the most important lessons get forgotten. <coughs> so, it brings to mind to me a haunting 
poem, Ozymandias, by Percy Bysshe Shelley. He says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, too vast and trunkless, thank you, brother. Look at that. Oh, it's water. Okay, anyway, no. <laughs> it's given in love, so it's holy water, so it is. And all of you are hoping I swallow the button. Sorry, that wasn't on the notes. Um, <clears throat> thank you. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the stand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level stand, sands stretch far away. All despots and dictators in all of history have something in common. They're either dead or they will be. We need to remember we don't get our value out of what we gather, how much stuff we have. We don't get our value over mindless bar hopping or um, snarky, searing, sarcastic divisive laughter. No, it all leads us, this chapter one and chapter two, to the barrenness of ancient statues looking out over nothing, where once there was a kingdom. But I want you to look at verse 10 again. It's easy to miss it, because we get so depressed by the time we head it, that we slide right past it. I denied myself nothing my heart and my eyes desired. You already saw that. I refused my heart no pleasure. We see that. My heart took delight in all my labor. Did you wait? Hang on. Did you notice there was a positive sentence in the middle of this? Nope, 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 nope. All of a sudden, there's a positive. My heart took delight in all my labor, and that was the reward. That's my reward. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to see the end of the story. We don't even have to be here for the end of the story. Nobody has to remember us for the end of the story to still work out very, very well for us. The reward for our lives is not in the building of lasting monuments, nor in the collection of stuff and things, and not in the bizarre and never-ending cult for parties and sex and drugs and alcohol, running after this and that pleasure. No, the journey, the meaning, is all about finding joy in the journey is a part of what we're doing. I remember the doctor told me, this is way back in the late 80s, that the reason I was constantly sick was that I had a tumor in here. Um, and they needed to get it out, which I thought, you know, yes, non-cancerous tumor. I always forget to bring that up. People say, are you dying? Well, we all are. It's just different speeds. But no, uh, it wasn't cancer. But they had to go get it out. They had to 
two, two surgeries and take all, you know, the brain fell on the floor, they dusted it off, we're, we're good, we're good. But it was going to be a rather one, and so I, I, I'm on the gurney there, that wee cart trolley thing. The nurse was taking my blood pressure, and she frowned, and she took it again, and she frowned. She's taking it a third time, I said, is there a problem? You see, in our family, we have genetically super low blood pressure. She said, is there any reason why, I forget the number, it's like uh, that you're 90 over 62 right here. And I said, ah, yeah, I'm all worked up right now. <laughs> and she, she looked at me and kind of half smiled, not knowing if she was allowed to. And she said, um, you have a good attitude for somebody going into surgery. And I said, um, well, no matter what happens, I win. And I talked to her, I said, you know, when I was a wee boy, my dad would come in and tell us scary stories before we go to bed, because that's advisable if you want your children to settle down. <laughs> Don't know what book he picked up. Anyway, you know, it, his big hairy arm would come around the, from the door and turn the lights out. We all run, jump in the same bed, you know. And here he'd come in with a flashlight right under there, because that's an effective disguise. Uh, and, and, he, and, we're, and he'd make up stories, and they were terrifying. They, so they were. You know, and he'd always start, well, once there were these two girls and a wee boy, and we're looking at each other going, that could be us. <laughs> but we knew, no matter how scary the story got, that at the end we would win because it was our dad telling the story. And I looked at the nurse, I said, I don't know how this is going to end, but I do know who's telling the story. A year later, when I had to go back for the second surgery, same nurse, she didn't recognize me until she took my blood pressure. She looked up, she said, it's you. And I said, <laughs> I said, I'm still in the story. You might as well enjoy the moment. I've told my kids all my life, if you're falling out of an airplane without a parachute, enjoy the view. <laughs> out of all your options, that's the best one. And if you're crying and screaming, you're going to miss it. Well, you're not going to miss the planet, but you're going to miss the view. <laughs> enjoy the journey. And you might think, how can I do this? Well, let's, let's keep studying through. But there might be a clue in where you put your eyes. When I drive, I never see deer and turkeys and all that other. You know, sometimes, yeah, if there's a mass of them. But normally not. And the reason is hunting was never part of my culture. And so I was never really trained to look for them. You see what you train yourself to look for. If you look for beauty and joy, you can find it, even in the strangest moments. Mark, if you'd bring your team up, we're going to do a long reading now. Would you please stand for a reading from God's Holy Word, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, in other words, what are you looking at? What are you noticing? Where do you put your eyes? Then the light within you is darkness, and how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spend. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? The pagans run after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But read this with me. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. As we continue our search for wisdom, watch where you're putting your eyes.